Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And this week, I'm going to be talking about the German Revolution of 1918. Now I must admit I have an agenda this week because my new ebook called Revolution, Reaction and the Birth of Nazism is due out in a week or two and it's available on Kindle and all other regular e-readers. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that one. It's a, a new title that's going to be really, really useful if you're studying this if you're an armchair historian or enthusiast, or you just generally want to know a little bit more about those formative years after World War One, where Germany was in a ferment of ideologies left and right, when communism and various kinds of nationalistic fascism were competing with one another uh, against liberal democracy to decide the fate of the nation. Now, if there's one man that casts a long shadow over this period of time, even before the advent of Adolf Hitler on the scene, I would say it's Erich von Ludendorff. And I say that for two main reasons. The first is because of his failed offensive in 1918. Now, by 1918, the uh, outlook for Germany was not good. The spring of 1918, well, indeed, the winter of 1917, had admittedly seen Russia uh, fall to revolution, but she hadn't left the war yet. And there was, until March 1918, no indication necessarily that she would do. The Americans were now, since April 1917, had joined the war, and they were coming over to Europe in ever greater numbers. And a Royal Naval blockade was strangling Germany. Uh, the German inability to knock the Royal Navy out of action in 1916 at the Battle of Jutland had had profound consequences, and the German U-boat campaign in the Atlantic was in fact less effective due to the creation of new escort convoy systems than the Royal Naval blockade of German ports was to, proving to be in the North Sea and the Baltic. So Germany had a limited amount of time left in which to win the war. The clock was ticking, and Ludendorff was the man, hopefully, to deliver the victory. The Kaiser had become a shadowy figure. He had retreated from politics and become a, a remote figure. He'd had something of a nervous breakdown in about 1916. He'd never been a particularly sound mind, uh, but the pressures of war had uh, obviously been too much for him. And Germany had been 
ruled essentially by Ludendorff and Hindenburg, both of whom had shown their military prowess initially at the battles of Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes in 1914. Ludendorff had planned his spring offensive as early back as November 1917, and he believed that if he could create a division between the British and French armies using uh, shock troops, um, the strategy would be to, that had been learned on the Eastern Front, was to use stormtroopers to destroy vital strategic positions such as communication centres, command centres and transport networks and then for armies almost to, to bypass, for them to bypass the uh, bulk of Allied armies and for the remainder of the German army to take those on. And this had worked very well on the Eastern Front. The problem that Ludendorff encountered was that his goals, his strategic goals, kept changing. There seemed to be no overall strategic vision as to what he wanted to achieve. And so when he used the shock troop strategy, initially the British armies were pushed far back, but they tended to abandon territory that was of no strategic use to the British anyway, and hold on to that which was useful. The uh, shock troops, who were the best soldiers cherry-picked from German regiments and put into, into assault brigades, were by and large annihilated in the full-on assaults into the most heavily defended British and French positions. And that left a, uh, a bulk of the German army that lacked expertise and lacked morale and lacked training and physical fitness and all the rest of it to take on um, battle-hardened French and British troops. When the advance began to run out of steam in the summer of 1918 and Ludendorff realised that he didn't have the men in the rear to consolidate the gains that the armies had made, the initiative passed to the Allies, um, led by uh, Ferdinand Foch, who was made Supreme Commander of Allied Forces and eventually made a Marshal of France, and under him, a slightly more reluctant American general, John Pershing, who disagreed with Foch and felt that the Americans should be slightly more independent, as they were now going to be making up the bulk of fighting forces. The Counterattack is so successful that by uh, September 1918, the German generals, German high command, know that the war is lost, and they advise the Kaiser of this. And by October 1918, Ludendorff is openly asking the Kaiser to sue for peace. During the war in Germany, there had been a, a social truce. The SPD and the, the Centre and Conservative parties had had something of a gentleman's agreement that um, they would uh, disengage from politically duelling with one another, and they would unite in order to support a more patriotic national cause. The SPD, the Democratic Socialists, had something of a core of um, patriotic conservatism to them by 1914, and they all universally agreed that there was nothing more repellent than Tsarist autocracy anyway, that the, the Kaiser's authoritarian government was nothing compared to what a, a Germany conquered by Russia would be like. By 1917, however, the SPD had split over the issue of the war, and the USPD, the independent Social Democrats, had emerged, who were far more left-wing and radical, 
and were agitating for a an, uh, an armistice and who were uh, agitating for general strikes. Many of them were sent to jail, the likes of Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht and Clara Zetkin, who were the lead revolutionaries, uh, were sent to jail for quite some considerable period of time and were let out under a general amnesty in 1918. By this time, Germany is in some considerable economic strife. The blockade is strangling Germany. They, uh, there is uh, almost conditions of famine. Perhaps not quite at this stage, but certainly issues of profound hunger. The winter of uh, 1918 is known as the turnip winter, as that's pretty much all there was to eat. And inflation is running, uh, running rampant. During the war, the massive overspend that the war takes, because obviously no one was expecting a long war, everyone's expecting a short war, and the government had really budgeted for that, um, had to, the shortfall has to be made up in both borrowing, because the German population are unwilling to really stomach tax hikes to pay for the war, and it's paid for using uh, the printing of money, which, as we know later on, it uh, becomes quite catastrophic. So the, the social truce that existed in 1914, by 1917, and certainly by 1918, has completely broken down. And Germany, the effect of the war is starting to polarise Germany. The uh, position of particularly the industrial workers of places like Berlin, which was known as Red Berlin, is, is really starting to polarise. And the, the final um, crisis comes in Wilhelmshaven in the north-west of Germany when the Kaiser's fleet mutinies. And this came as a terrible body blow to the Kaiser. The fleet was one of the institutions that the Kaiser was most beloved of the Kaiser, that he had championed and built up and created into a, a fighting unit, hopefully to rival um, the Royal Navy and to uh, champion German prestige around the world. And here it is, re uh, rebelling against his rule. I mean, the reasons for the rebellion are quite obvious in that the, the um, German high seas fleet, which had never quite recovered from the Battle of Jutland, although on uh, on points it kind of won the Battle of Jutland, had to retreat from the high seas just due to the overwhelming size of the Royal Navy, and it was, in 1918, expected to go out and fight one last suicidal battle against the, the might of the Royal Navy on the high seas, one which it would inevitably have lost. And the sailors, unsurprisingly, decided they don't want to do that. There had been revolutionary groups in the Navy, much as there had been prior to the Russian Revolution in the Russian Navy. There had been revolutionary groups for a long, long time who had been planning and organising what to do in the eventuality of order breaking down. And they do, um, they're quite restrained compared to what happens in Russia. They simply arrest their officers and don't execute any of them and they confine them to barracks, and the Admiral of the High Seas Fleet simply says, well, you know, I, I have to accept what the men have done, there's nothing I can do, and really the revolution is, is, um, is effective in like that. The men go, then go on to engage with the civilian population in uh, nearby towns like Kiel, 
and the civilian population then encourage the garrison to mutiny. And the moment that the Kaiser becomes aware that his troops are no longer loyal to him, here is where he panics and is persuaded to flee the country. In the south, suddenly um, you have uh, a Bavarian socialist republic emerge, um, led, for, led by Kurt Eisner in Munich. The mutineers at Wilhelmshaven have uh, used the rail network, used the telegraph network to spread their message across Germany very quickly and within a few days nearly every hereditary monarch across Germany, because obviously Germany is a, a federation of small monarchical states uh, coming under the umbrella of a big federal imperial state, all of these little rulers uh, from Ludwig III in Bavaria um, to the Kaiser himself all flee. So within a week Germany is free of um, monarchical rule. The fi final um, aristocratic chancellor of Germany, Prince Max of Baden, realises that he commands no authority with the general public and hands over very quickly to Friedrich Ebert, head of the SPD. And the reason he does that is because he knows that Ebert, as a moderate socialist, as a democratic socialist, is the only bulwark that the elites have between themselves and a communist revolution. They've seen what's happened in Russia, and in many ways the elites in Germany learn the lessons of what had happened in Russia and play a very clever game. Obviously to them having a democratic socialist isn't a great turnout, but it's an awful lot better than having the German equivalent of the Bolsheviks in, um, in Germany. And Friedrich Ebert is as good as his word. He is a, an avowed anti-revolutionary. He doesn't really want to see the end of the monarchy. He says, you know, it is, um, he describes the revolution as a poison to him. And when he has to accept the Kaiser's abdication, he says he does it with a heavy heart. And in January 1919, when there is a communist uprising in Berlin, as workers start to see the gains that they have made uh, in November be whittled away. It's Ebert who employs the Freikorps, who are right-wing, nationalistic, demobbed paramilitaries. Men who are fresh back from the front, accompanied by younger men who never got to saw see any battle during the war and who want their own piece of the action. United in a fierce anti-communism, it's these guys that come and slaughter the communists of Berlin at Friedrich Ebert's behest. This leaves Germany in an interesting situation. The moderate social democrats who have inherited power and have to do the unpleasant task of signing the Treaty of Versailles and agreeing to all the painful uh, clauses therein, they have made a Faustian pact with the right. They don't get rid of uh, the um, top brass of the army because without the top brass of the army, who are old conservatives from Prussian Junkers, they won't have any sw any sway over the Freikorps or any serving soldiers. So they need to have a relationship with the top brass of the army. And Ebert and Wilhelm Groner, who is the chief of the general staff at the time, um, come to come to an understanding that the the army will protect the government in return for the government, this, the new socialist government, not meddling in any of the practices of the army. 
the civil service goes largely unchanged, so all the um, uh, the infrastructure of the civil service, which is absolutely vast, um, that has been um, largely conservative with the small c under the Kaiser, is carried on into the Weimar Republic. And the judiciary don't change either. So all the conservative mechanisms of the Kaiser's, Repu uh, the Kaiser's empire are carried on into the Weimar Republic, and so a, any kind of um, liberal instinct that the Weimar Republic might have has to be um, practically carried out by deeply conservative enemies of the Republic. But of course, the alternative for Ebert would have been to have some kind of alliance with the, um, the communists, the KPD, the Spartacists who rose up in Berlin, um, both of whom are again committed to destroying a liberal republic and replacing it with something more favourable to the new Soviet Russia. So it's not really much of a choice at all. It's these circumstances, it's these circumstances of um, how the revolution unfolds that give us the shaky republic that comes to replace uh, imperial Germany and the fundamental instabilities, the fundamental cracks within that shaky republic are later to be exploited by Adolf Hitler. Now, of course, you can find out all about this in the aforementioned e-book Re Revolution, Reaction and the Birth of Nazism, Germany 1918-1923 to and that's out in a couple of weeks, downloadable for a small stipend to your Kindle and if you uh, need to uh, contact me or talk to me or inquire about anything I've said in this podcast you can get me at www.explaininghistory.com and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter there as well, which keeps you abreast of all the announcements and all the new titles that are coming out. So make sure you do that, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.